This week, we are joined by Zach Hoffman from Washington, D.C. Zach got a start in the industry while still in high school when he got a job working in a tiny kitchen in a small wine bar in Northern Virginia. This ignited his desire to create art with food. As a result, Zach wound up attending and graduating from the Culinary Institute of America. Zach has worked in and around the Washington, D.C. area over the last several years in both back-of-house and front-of-house roles. During this time, Zach has also become an outspoken leader for the industry and co-founded the DC Bar and Restaurant Workers Alliance, an inclusive worker-driven platform that provides protection, empowerment, advocacy, and tangible services to the bar and restaurant workforce. As always, make sure you check out the links to Zach's sites in the podcast show notes. Enjoy this week's show. All right, welcome to the Industry Podcast, where we tell the stories of people in the service industry. I'm your host, Kip Saunders. This is Dan Soretta. What is going on? Uh, not too much in my world. Um, same old, same old. It's like Groundhog Day, that movie, all the time. Uh, yeah. For everyone probably on the planet right now, actually. So we're recording on what is it, the February 8th today? This is February 8th. Yeah. And, so. Oh, and this is episode number 50. Oh, congratulations. Yes. Nice <laughs> we milestone. made it to 50. <laughs> yeah, about 48 more than most people assumed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah myself included. Yes. Um, so, yeah, that's of today. Restrictions lightened a little bit in Ontario, but to no effect on the service industry. We're all oh, still on that's lockdown. Right. So just Groundhog Day, 100%, yeah. trying to sell cocktails to go. And that's about all anyone's got going on right now. We have a great guest, as always, for you on this episode. We have Zach Hoffman joining us from uh, Washington, D.C. We'll bring him in in just a second. Let's get the housekeeping out of the way. If you like the show, you should subscribe, rate, and review Wherever you're listening to your podcast, that helps us out a great deal. If you want to be on the show, just DM us at the Industry Podcast, and uh, we'll we'll book you in. And as always, a great shout out to at Zach Canada Design for all the artwork he does for our Instagram pages, etc. So that's about it. We may as well just jump right in here and bring Sounds in good. Zach Hoffman. How are you, Zach? Doing well. How are you guys doing? Yeah, doing very well. Thanks COVID good, as I like to say. Yes. Yeah, as, good as, as good as you can be, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so that's how we pretty much always have to start these episodes until we get to the other side of this nonsense. Uh, what's the COVID situation like in D.C.? Um, how is it for restaurants, bars? You guys open? Yeah, I mean, I think Washington, D.C. has done a pretty decent job overall handling the pandemic, I think, as far as the United States is concerned. Um, there's definitely some regional variants, you know, we're kind of in between Maryland and Virginia. So we're kind of beholden to what's going on with, with each of them, restaurants and bars, just like everywhere else, it's tragic. It's closures all the time, but you know, we're at, uh, 25% capacity inside seating. Uh, we did a lot to get people to have outdoor seating, takeout alcohol has not only been very popular, but permanently included in legislation recently mm-hmm. oh, so cool. we're really kind of rolling with the punches as much as we can but you know we're we're still not back to where we need to be yeah we have the same thing with the takeout alcohol and for for canada that's a big deal or at least in ontario we have really stringent rules here so that was a nice surprise and i just keep saying to people like once they've taken that let let, let that genie out of the bottle they can't stuff it back in like what are they going to say yeah. when we get past covid it's like oh all of a sudden it's not it's not okay for you to mm-hmm. do that like so well, we're actually experimenting with open container areas in DC. Oh, really? Wow. So that's actually really exciting. I think, mm-hmm. you know, the the administration is not trying to uh, you know, encourage bourbon street behavior, but to have kind of <laughs> designated areas where there's a lot of buildings that are owned by similar companies and they have kind of 
non-car driving lanes that are, are you know big open public areas that people can enjoy alcohol open yeah. oh that's a great walk idea. around the street have to go cups all that kind of stuff you know within the boundaries within the boundaries so, yeah that's sort of like um in Kansas City, they have that power and light district where it's like it's all yeah. outdoors, but like you can't you can't leave that district with your drink. But yeah. as long as you're doing it, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, so, what was the place that you were working at right before the uh, the pandemic? And are you still there? <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, I started March first oh, okay. at the place that I'm at now as the <laughs> beverage director. Um, and about 16 days later, I was unemployed and laid off for mm. four or five months. So. It, it's been, you know, it's been a real, real journey. I, I was thinking I was moving on up to this director position. I was going to do my own thing. And then COVID happened. So is this a new spot? Like, like you were opening it with them? They had opened in December. Okay. And then I came around in March after they had some people leave and it just kind of lined up. I was leaving my previous job and this opened up and it was like kind of a quick lane change for me. So mm-hmm. it was really, it was, you know, what I thought was going to be great. Yeah, you were probably involved with making new menus, et cetera, yeah. and then all of, oh, that's disappointing. so much time and energy to this. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, man. That's <laughs> Never like, saw the light of day. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like now where it's just like um, we've been yo-yoed between being open and closed a lot here in Ontario. And it's just like when you they reopen you, like it takes a while to get back into the excitement of it. Like you're just yeah. kind of like, ah, oh, these are the fucking drinks we got. Like, do you want yeah. some? That's <laughs> yeah. Right yeah. yeah. That's, that's like kinda... spiritually, mentally, emotionally. That's, that's where I, I kind of live at the moment. I, there's just not enough uh, volume to kind of spur the creative engine. Well, we <laughs> were on uh, the, the last time that we were open and the, I'm assuming this is going to be under the same situation. The next time we are allowed to open, it was 10 people only, no matter what the size of your space was. And, Oh, we had all had to do last call at 9 p.m. So like it's it's like you said, there's not enough volume to get excited about anything. It's just like I don't yeah. even feel like doing it. <laughs> yeah, we have a uh, you know you can be open serving food till midnight, but at 10 o'clock, uh, consumption and sales of alcohol have to finish. So oh, you know people don't get off work till five. So I really <laughs> only have maybe five hours of like prime drinking time that I can do anything, do any mm-hmm. sales really, and they're just there's just not enough time for everybody to kind of get their shit together and go out and they can't even really enjoy it anyway, because half the people are scared to even go out in the first place. And the other yeah. half are there and, you know, usually they're just kind of like basic bitches anyway. Yeah. And they're not allowed to talk to anybody else in the bar. So exactly. It's <laughs> yeah. not um, fostering a very fun environment. Oh no, we got to get out of the other side of this soon. Soon <laughs> Vaccines. Let's go. Um, okay. So like, but you didn't start uh, out in the industry on uh, in the front of the house. You started um, back in the kitchen, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I started cooking uh, when I was in high school. Uh, when I was a junior in high school, I actually opened a restaurant. Um, and I don't know why anyone, trusted me with this you know, <laughs> ended up being quite a bit of responsibility. I was 50 <laughs> fucking years old, but, um, yeah, so it was a little restaurant. I was going to a vocational school through my high school, uh, in Loudoun County, Virginia. Uh, there was a culinary arts program and uh, I was there half the time in regular school, half the time. And they called up. My teacher was on the phone, looked through the window, saw me. She's like, yeah, I got a kid. He wants a job. Like, all right, here you go. A couple weeks later, it's me and the chef and that's the entirety of the back of the house staff. Right. Like there's no dishwasher. <laughs> there's no prep cuts. There's wow. nobody that comes in in the morning. Like that's it. Uh, so I really, really started to learn quickly, uh, you know, what this life is about. 
And this is a, a wine bar, correct? It was a wine bar, yeah. It was uh, called the Wine Kitchen in Leesburg, Virginia. Mm. Great spot. They're still open. They got a couple locations now. They're still doing oh, pretty well. Hope oh, they're... It's good to hear a success story these days. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I wish them the best. I really yeah. do. They're a great, great couple guys. Um, so I know that uh, just when I was uh, scrolling through your bio, the uh, you've done a lot of wine training as well. Obviously, do you mm-hmm. feel like this got sparked back way back then, or maybe not quite yet? I think probably yeah. I think there was definitely a lot of like keen interest. I mean, I'm 15, so I'm not even right. going anywhere near wine. Like I maybe would get deliveries off of a truck, but that was it. Yeah. Um, so. I think just kind of seeing the culture and this was like a really, in my view now is like the most cliche restaurant that I've ever worked in. Like it was, you know, in, in the sense of like, it was a great place to work. Like it was just a very smooth running machine. Everybody was friends with each other. There was a very clear delineation of duties and like, it just was, you know, firing like a well-oiled machine. Oh, and, nice. you know, I think later in life when I did get involved in wine and in, in college, um, yeah, I kind of looked back at that and kind of had fond memories of it. And it was, you know, it was good. So one thing we, yeah, one thing we never really talked about on this show is that, um, do you, I, I, everybody has their own experience, but I'm, I'm just sort of wondering to flesh it out a little bit. Like when you start and your very first job is like at a small, like it's not at a chain, like a lot of people end up starting at chain restaurants, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's who's hiring younger people. Yeah. Um, you start at like a nice independent spot and it's also a well-oiled machine. Like how do you feel that that helped your development in your time in the industry as opposed to like, because a lot of people start at chains or a lot of people start at places that are just run like a complete shit show. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I definitely know those kind of people because I've worked with them uh, you know, through my <laughs> yeah. career or I went to college with them or whatever. Um you know, I think having that good experience really at the beginning of your career to kind of set your standards as that is what is expected of you and and what you should expect from your employer, mm-hmm. make you a better cook, a better bartender, a better manager, a better owner, whatever it is you end up being, it makes you better in every way right. because you have that really instilled right when you're very manipulable, you know, they, you're malleable to your surroundings. Mm-hmm. That is the most important time. And to have a bad experience, I think, can really scar you. And to have a good experience can really set you up for success. Right. Yeah. I I, I think you're right, too. I I mean, I'm, I'm trying to remember, like, my back in my first jobs, if it had that kind of effect on me. But I'm so fucking old now, I can't even remember. It's not impossible <laughs> to get out of those bad habits. I mean, no. I've, seen, I've seen, especially in cooks, you know, people that have come from really terrible habits of just have bad backgrounds of not really putting out anything of quality, turning into Michelin star, you know, chef de parties that are just killing it. And mm-hmm. you love to see that. So yeah. you know that there's, there's still a redemption out there for everyone, but right. uh, it, it definitely creates more hurdles than it, than it helps. Um, so how long did you, um, did you work in kitchens before you decided you wanted to make the transition to the front of the house or did it happen more organically than that? Uh, it happened pretty quickly. I cooked for, from the time I was 15 till I graduated college about 21, 22. Um, that entire time I cooked, I cooked while I was up in New York at CIA and I cooked before that. And after I graduated, I had done my bachelor's degree in advanced wines, beverage and hospitality management. So I knew that's the kind of path I was going to be on, but I was still cooking kitchens. And then I, 
ended up staging at the in a little Washington for a little bit in kind of a front of the house, back of the house position as like an expo. And okay. that was, you know, that really made me confused if I was, you know, buy house at that point. And then, <laughs> <laughs> you know, then uh, the Greenbrier called me with a job offer and that really kind of solidified that relationship with me. Yeah, I want to talk about the Greenbrier, as I was mentioning to you before we started recording, and we uh, kind of checked the website for that place, and it just looks fucking incredible. But uh, um, yeah. before we get there, I, I, for everyone that we've had on the show who has sort of transitioned from back of house to front of house, I always like to ask them like how you feel your experience there affected your experience going to the front of the house. Like, What did you learn in the back of the house that really helped you when you made the transition? Yeah, I think as a cook, I was very much a tactician. I wasn't necessarily the artist. I wasn't necessarily the, uh, you know, overseer. I was very much about the craft and the, the technique. And that translated very well, especially I find when I bartend that I'm very much, you know, very meticulous about how I do things, the order of operations, being very efficient with my motions. Mm -hmm. And that's something every bartender will learn because your body will tell you. Yeah, uh, very quickly yeah. <laughs> if you're doing it wrong. Yeah, but I think I kind of had that advantage, kind of being a young bartender, not falling into the bad habits or the, you know, common workplace injuries that typically do come. Mm -hmm. Well, that's kind of interesting. Most of the people we've had who made that transition have sort of been the other way. Oh, like the creativity I learned at the back of the house really helped me when I started making cocktails and stuff. But you, you more learned that create creative side of it after you already left. Yeah, I think the kind of the flavor foundations and how flavor works and being cognizant of that is certainly a kind of a more subconscious skill set that I find is very helpful. Right. Um, but like I said, I was very much more a tactician. I was trying to like impress these 30 year old men that were on the line with me of like, you know, why is this 16 year old, 17 year old on, you know, cooking ribeyes and I'm stuck on, you know, veg like why is he there and my chef would be like because he can fucking cook a steak better than you <laughs> you put your head down you might be able to cook as good as zach and those kind of comments were not good for me at, at 17 i'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah probably didn't make it the most popular guy either <laughs> uh okay let's talk about the greenbrier i like it again anybody should uh, who's listening to the show should just Google that spot it looks unbelievable yeah, and like how how many people stay there like it looks massive um I think, I think there's a thousand rooms uh, that can hold, you know, probably two to three thousand people wow. um, at any given time. So that's a lot of people. That's, it, yeah. that, if it was full, you know, the, the population change of that county is pretty significant because there's right. nobody that lives out there. Right. Yeah. yeah. Describe the surrounding. If you don't mind just running us through exactly what, like where it's situated, um, what kind of people stay there, kind of, like uh, kind of what the, the dining and bar situation is. Yeah, so it's a little tiny coal town in the middle of the southern kind of bend or the belly of West Virginia. It's called White Sulphur Springs. Um, there's nothing going on around there. It's all forest. The major kind of thoroughfares are the highways and the train tracks that bring the coal in and out of the station. No. That's like how you know where you're at. Can I see the highway bridge? Can I see the train tracks? Um, and that's kind of how you navigate. There's an entire campus and basically a mountain that's owned by the Greenbrier um, golf courses. I think there's four or five different golf courses, full manicured PGA level, 18 hole golf courses. There's kind of the main campus, which is a collection of buildings. That's the, you know, thousand people uh, 
guest rooms, there's the casino, there's all the bars and restaurants. Then there's the golf club that's kind of down the hill. There's the pool house, which is immaculate. And then going up the hill, there's the private residences of, you know, people like Jerry West, you know, the NBA logo guy, Wow. Uh, other various golf celebrities, um, various coal miner barons, you know, the dying breed of those guys up there. Um, and it's just a, a fortress of like old money. No. The people that come there are exactly what you would expect when I say old money. Like it's <laughs> like there's dress codes and the standards of the employees are exactly the same kind of standards that the families have for their children. None of the children are happy any of the time. They're all in suits. You know, there's a lot of money at play. Everyone is so fucking important. You know, it's it's a very interesting place. I definitely recommend it if you like kind of that old timey, you know, I don't want to say the good old days because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it has a weird connotation, yeah. <laughs> but it certainly has like that, like ye olde. Yeah. Like, a different, different era. Different, yeah. It's totally, and it's totally locked in that era. There's nothing that's oh. going to change that. So what and, was your job when you first started working there? So I did their manager and training program. So I really worked on a lot of different mm aspects you know i did some time in accounting and i did some time in the in the wine warehouse essentially um but i was managing different uh concepts and restaurants inside the dine inside the uh inside the the venues and i kind of stayed as the main dining room uh manager which is you know when you say main dining room i mean this is a fucking the like if you had a, you know, you have a big house, you got a dining room in your house and it's, a, you know, big tall walls and there's a big table and you got all your china and shit. Make that seat 500 people, <laughs> giant <laughs> columns, chandeliers everywhere. I mean, it's it's the most immaculate dining room you could ever imagine. Wow. Wow. But if you were in like a castle. Right. So that was a restaurant. Oh, man. <laughs> and, uh, uh, anytime there was weddings or events or private whatever that, you know, large groups, they would kind of come and hang with us. And how long did you work there? It was about a year. Yeah, that seems like just about enough of the kind of people <laughs> you'd have to be serving there. <laughs> yeah, it, it would really, I did enjoy my job. I loved going to work, but mm. leaving work, always there, there's mood. nothing. <laughs> there's cows across the street at my house, and it's just like you wake up, you hear the mooing. Oh, man. Like, I, I can't do this forever. So, yeah, where would you live? Like, did you live close by or? Yeah, I lived in uh, Lewisburg, which was the coolest small town in America for a while. And I learned that that was kind of a cruel joke. Yeah. They, they post on, because there's nothing cool about it. <laughs> there's kind of a main drag that's a little bit interesting, but once uh, you've drank at every bar, you know, in a week on that strip, it kind of gets old. Right. Um, but like for the type of people you're serving, like that honestly sounds like a server's nightmare. Just a bunch of people who think they're way more important than they actually are. And, uh, you, you would definitely think so. And there's definitely a lot of that. However, I think you're also on the opposite end of the spectrum where you have some of the greatest people that you'll ever serve. People that are genuinely very nice, you know, people that actually really care about wine. I think one of the hardest things being a sommelier, especially if you have a, the caliber of a wine cellar that I was managing, there isn't always an audience for that. Yeah. People don't always give a shit. No, they don't. They want a $60 bottle of wine. Yeah. yeah I have wines from $10 
or, you know, maybe $25 to Mm $42,000. So there's a lot of middle range here that people aren't even (laughs) accessing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You're right. Generally people go for something between 50 and 80 bucks and like, and, and that's great. You can get into a lot of interesting, cool wine in that price range for sure. sure. But like to really sell the balls out wine and, and to speak to it in a way that like that is still interests you to talk about it is like, those are few and far between the people you get to talk to about that way. You actually want to hear it. Yeah. And even if you're on, you know, they're on vacation. So we'll say maybe the price point moves up a hundred dollars. Um, we're still in like really good wine, Mm -hmm. but I know that I have truly excellent specimens throughout history Right. that I can bring you, you know, and yeah. I, I really do, you know, cherish every opportunity I have to like actually sell someone those kind of wines. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's not for everyone and I, I don't expect it to, but when it, that opportunity does come, uh, oftentimes those people are, are really, really cool. That's cool. Yeah. And especially for someone who's really into wine, like you, like, just yeah. cause almost like I'm really into wine as well. I don't have near your qualifications, but, um, the, like that's what I find. Like when I want to geek out and talk about wine, there's very few uh, guests that you serve that actually want yeah. to like have the patience to listen to it. And I also have worked with people who don't recognize that either, and I'll still talk it to them forever. And you can just mm-hmm. see the people at the table just being like, "When is this fucking guy going away?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? people just don't get it. And you know, you, I think on the on the opposite side of what I was talking about, you have the people who are like they see the Sasakaya, they want it. They see the Robert Mandavi Reserve, you know, the, not the, you know, the actual good reserve stuff. And they Mm -hmm. just go for it, you know, $600 bottles and they don't care, but they drink that at home. I'm like, why don't you drink some of this 1955, you know, Vina Tedonia that I have that I got recorked in the eighties. I wasn't even born yet. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's cool wine and you can afford it. I know you can. Like uh, one thing I discovered just in people in general, there's the people who just want to show off how much knowledge they have about something. And then there's the people who are eager to uh, attain knowledge from people who m- might know more than them. And I think that go- follows in every way of life. But specifically, I know it's a lot in the service industry. Like when you, like I used to own a, like a high end sort of whiskey bar and like to try and talk like high end whiskey to people. Some people genuinely wanted the knowledge and you could really talk to them about it. And then, but yeah. then a lot of people just wanted to tell you what they knew. Yeah. And like, you know, and then as yeah. a result, they just end up drinking what they always drink. I love people who do want to flex on people, mm-hmm. but they're open to like, what do you got that I can flex? And I'm right. Like, oh, yeah. Okay. Let me, let me open up the special little, you know, cue drawer for James Bond. Like I got yeah. all the toys for you, man. Like you want to yeah. drink something that's going to make everybody jealous. Yeah, I got three bottles of this. And there's only three bottles in the state. Go for it. Like, yeah, this yeah. yeah, that's fun. Uh, so when so you went there for a year and then after that um, is when do you make the transition to move to Washington, D.C.? Pretty much immediately. I think I stayed in West Virginia for like a month because it costs virtually nothing to live there. So I kind of right. just hung out and grew out a beard and had <laughs> some fun and um, moved back up to where I'm from in Ashburn and ended up getting an opportunity to work for Brian Voltaggio at a couple of different restaurants of his while we were waiting for the one he's opening in Ashburn to open and kind of worked around in those different places and uh, waited to, you know, manage that restaurant. And, you know, I was living at home at the moment. I knew I wanted to move to DC, but I didn't know when or where, what was going to kind of you know, take me, you know, what was going to happen. I just kind of was winging it at that point. 
Mm-hmm. How old are you at this point? I'm 28. Yeah, so still really young. You're 28 right now, or I'm talking about like when this was happening. When no, I'm 28 to... today, right now. Yeah, okay, so when you moved yeah. to DC, or where you where you're in this transition period, you're talking about how old were you then? 22, 23. So really, really yeah. young. So obviously, you powered through a lot of uh, education and targeted this industry. So that probably helped a lot because a lot yeah. of us tend to go to school for something else and then realize we're going to end up doing this. Do you feel like that got you a little bit of a jump start? I think I think that's exactly what I wanted it to be, and mm. um, that's how I'm using it. You know, I don't think I learned anything in college that I couldn't learn out in the field. I just think it would have taken me ten more years to do it. Right. I think right now I would have been at that level. You know, mm. it pushed me to connect with people that I wouldn't normally connect with, and that has been one of the single greatest things that I've ever done in my life. A lot of, you know, in in my life story where we're at right now, the yeah. networking comes in very handy from yeah. this point forward. And yeah. that's, you know, in, immeasurably of value to me. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so talk to me about uh, you, you're working um, or you're waiting for this one place to open and you're working in a couple of his other restaurants at the same time. Talk to me mm-hmm. a little bit about that experience. Yeah, so Brian Voltaggio kind of at his peak of his restaurant empire uh, had range in Washington, D.C. He had Volt in Frederick, Maryland, Family Meal in Frederick, Maryland. He had a sandwich shop underneath range, and he was opening a Family Meal in Ashburn. So I was kind of working at all of these different restaurants at the time. I was a captain at Agio, which was kind of like a pop-up restaurant in the back of range. And funny enough, range is where I would meet probably all of my greatest friends in the industry uh, that kind of ran through that shop at one time or another. Um, served at range, bartended, uh, down at lunchbox and made sandwiches and stuff. And then did that for like four months. I just worked seven days a week, just at all these different restaurants and didn't really know what I was going to do. And then they opened up family meal and I became the bar manager soon after it opened. And that was like my first real bar gig. Yeah, and then you start getting into some more of the craft cocktailing, et cetera. Yeah. And I want to talk about that, but just as an aside, all these different jobs you've done, like what can you pick one that's your favorite to do? I really do enjoy bartending. And I think that has a lot to do with my love of, of cooking and being, you know, producing edible and drinkable materials, you know, with, with your hands and producing something somebody else can enjoy, Mm -hmm. but you lose out on the watching people eat it from the kitchen. Right. I get to see people enjoy it right in front of my face, which, you know, kind of feeds into my own narcissism, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I think we're all, we all have a little bit of that. At some point you decide that you're gonna jump into the world of politics also while you're doing this. How did that happen? Yeah. So, I mean, all the way from high school until now, I've been really involved in politics and like volunteering for political campaigns, local, state, national, whatever it was. And I thought like, you know, I'm doing my civic duty, like helping the people that I believe in, whatever. And then I realized that really doesn't matter that much. Uh, if you want something done, you got to kind of do it yourself. Um, in 2018, there was a ballot initiative that was going to eliminate the tips minimum wage in Washington, D.C. So it was called Initiative 77. And what we kind of found was that the voices of people that actually work in the industry were not being the most considered. It was people that were just being very loud and obnoxious about the topic. Mm -hmm. Regardless of what your opinion was, it's just like 
how about we listen to the people that actually work as a career in the industry and we'll have that conversation ourselves and we'll let you know what we want to do. Right. Yeah. As opposed to you figure it out and get back to us. Yeah. So that whole process, I kind of ended up leading, you know, I was one of the many worker leaders of this movement against this ballot initiative and, you know, learned very quickly that if you don't have any political capital, you can't make any changes. Mm-hmm. So I said, from that point, after we we were successful, we beat that ballot initiative that I was going to run for office. I didn't care what it was, you know, how important it was. I just wanted to run for something I knew I could win and make that change. So I did run last year in 2020 for uh, the position is called ANC Commissioner. So it's the Advisory Neighborhood Council. There's a lot of weird stuff with the D.C.'s local government, state government, um, because we're not state. Right. But uh, that's just kind of I represent a single member district in my neighborhood and my neighborhood and a couple other neighborhoods are grouped together in an ANC and all of the single member district commissioners kind of sit together and we talk about different things, send letters to different agencies, pass resolutions, uh, approve, disapprove different things that directly impact the neighborhoods. And, uh, you know, it's a small, a very small seat in a very big pond, but it's, you know, I feel like I'm making a difference and bringing the voice of foreign restaurant workers to the government and, you know, having that perspective being on display. Well, I'm glad you're doing that because uh, we've had people on here before discussing this. Um, but it really sort of opened my eyes when you, we had, I think it was uh, one of the owners of uh, Pearl Morissette in Niagara, who was, uh, we, we had a round table on tip culture. Yeah, and, I listened to that. Oh, yeah, I did. Oh, thanks. Um, the, and we, one thing he brought up before we started recording, actually, was that, that we don't have a voice in government here in Canada either. And I, so it's, it's interesting to hear it sort of the same way in, in the U.S., but like it's almost every other industry has a major voice in government in some way, shape or form, be it through like officials or lobbyists or whatever. And yeah. we just don't have that. And, and why do you think that is? And like, how do we change it? Well, I think really simply, maybe an oversimplification, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that like a lot of us in this industry are kind of comfortable being on the fringes of society And it's just kind of the lifestyle, the culture. We don't have to get involved with a lot of things because we're kind of an ancillary group that kind of flows with the flow of, you know, what's going on. And, you know, I think 2008 really kind of should have been a catalyst for more organizing. But I think just the type of people that are bartenders and servers and cooks and restaurant owners, they just aren't accustomed to being that involved and kind of a social discourse and, and public policy. And it's a lot of new skill sets and a lot of new like ways of thinking about things and things work a lot slower. There's no on the fly legislation, you know, it's things take time and they're, they're slow working and you have to really commit to it. And if you're not familiar with any of that, it's really a tough road to kind of break into. And probably like very easy to get frustrated. Cause like you said, oh, yeah. we're, we're very used to moving in our jobs, like everything is very fast paced and you get immediate, um, you get an immediate result. Yeah, exactly. And the, and the results typically are, you know, dependent upon how much effort you put into it. It's not mm -hmm. a matter of 
if right. it's a matter of when is it going to get done? I'll do it right now. But, you know, do I have to run down the street to the store to make this happen or or what? You know, yeah. there's no, there's none of that in politics. It's no. it's a very slow moving river. Huh. Yeah, that's uh, but the it's something that we really need to have happen. Like, I know, obviously, there's differences between government in the U.S. and Canada, but we're we're pretty similar. What would be sort of your advice if, to somebody in Canada or even anybody in the U.S. about trying to try to start a process towards uh, getting a voice in government. Yeah. And this was something that I was planning on talking about last year at Bar Convent, Brooklyn. Um, this was, I had a whole seminar about this actually. Uh, unfortunately it got canceled and I couldn't attend. Well, here um, you go. Here's your forum. My <laughs> yeah, here's, here's forum. <laughs> uh, you know, it's workers do need to be the fundamental building blocks of the organizing. You don't need to let your owners do the organizing and you don't need to let outside groups do the organizing. The workers need to be the foundation of all of that. Um, I started or co-founded a group called the DC Bar and Restaurant Workers Alliance. It's a 501c6 nonprofit organization. We advocate for various things, but everything is through the lens of bar and restaurant workers and the workforce itself. That is a lot of work, and I don't expect everyone to do that, but it's a really good idea to kind of form something like that. And I know there's a lot of people that say, start a union. I love unions, I'm very pro-union. I like the idea of unions, but how transient our industry is, and especially right now with COVID, it's almost going to be impossible to really generate any momentum with a union. But what you can have, you know, what I have is a membership organization that's just, you know, you pay $5 and you're part of it for a year. Mm. And it doesn't matter where you work. As long as you're in the industry and you're a worker, you can join. Right. And having kind of a collective group of workers together, communicating between one another, keeping everybody accountable, keeping everybody up to date on what's going on, whether it's nationally or locally or, or within your state. It's really an important step to like getting everybody on board and, and activating people when you need them. You know, there's currently national legislation in the United States Senate talking about eliminating the tip credit again. And, you know, regardless of opinions, there's not a single person in the United States Senate that I'm aware of that's worked as a bartender or a server in the last 10 years. Right. So I don't think that these are people qualified to make that decision. No, they're not. And uh, you don't find that. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's like, you don't, you, you don't have a bunch of bartenders sitting around discussing the COVID rollout plan. Like, it's, <laughs> well, it's, maybe it's, a little bit, but. Well, but you know, you get my point, like we're not, or, or vaccine rollouts, I guess. Yeah, like, yeah. You know what I mean? Like the, like we're not qualified. Like, so why, yeah. why is it that they feel that they're qualified to talk about what we do for a living and, and then dictate to us? And it really goes, it, it was really brought to my attention once the pandemic hit because some of the rules are so arbitrary and targeted towards yeah. the, the service industry. Like, like having to close at nine o'clock, like what, and that makes no sense. So somebody could sit in my bar from 11 a.m. till 9 p.m. and not be at risk of getting covid but yeah from COVID nine, stops at 10 o'clock yeah yeah, yeah like it, and you can and obviously that's a rule made by somebody who has no fucking clue what they're talking about so i'll say one thing that dc has done really well from a politics point of view we have an office that's a cabinet level of our mayor who's essentially our governor um it's the director of the office of nightlife and culture and that's not something you see in every United States city or state or even in Canada. I think Toronto actually has one. 
hmm. um, nightmare or nightlife executive or whatever it is. That'd be a plum job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely applied for it when it came up. <laughs> I didn't get it. <laughs> I was 26 at the time, so I don't blame them. Um, but yeah, you know, inputting people into the government that are vastly aware of what our particular issues are, especially given how much we produce in tax base and how much we contribute in paying for all the other great systems, especially you guys in Canada. Oh, we yeah. don't get jack shit down here. Right. But, you know, <laughs> uh, we need to have a seat at the table and it shouldn't be, oh shit, we forgot to invite the restaurant people. It should be like, we can't even start until we talk to the restaurant people. Right. That's like, not how it goes. It's such a massive uh, economy, a, a massive part of ev- almost every major city's economy is, and, and in smaller every major, cities. Every yeah, state's economy. Yeah. And, and in smaller cities, even more so. Uh, so, uh, but it's, so it's, it's really amazing to me that for some reason, this is, seems to be the only industry that's underrepresented when it comes time to, um, talk about uh, governing. Well, I don't know if you have uh, the bartending guild in Canada, but so we have the USBG. So. No, no. so we have USBG in the US. Mm. It's uh, United States Bartenders Guild. And there's chapters, you know, different states, different cities, whatever. And just trying to get those motherfuckers to show up on time to a meeting yeah, that they pay the for. They pay to be a part of that group, you know, hey, to join world class. I'm like, I, I, <laughs> dude, I can't, I can't even tell you like how much since I become. Well, I've been in the industry my whole life, but like so the transients of it, I really that you were speaking of earlier really hits home. And also like now that I'm in in the ownership side of it, oh my god, like the transients. How, how many people show up on time every single shift? Right, like if you get <laughs> one of them, if you get one of them, that's great. <laughs> and that's not a that's not an indictment of the no, workforce. It's, it's just, just a reality. The, it's the way we have. You know, extrapolate hey, that into government and politics. It's, that, it's difficult. Trying to get fuckers to just show up for this podcast at the arranged time. <laughs> <laughs> and they, like people yeah, who reached out to it. me and wanted to do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, but I just get it. That's the industry that we're in. We, yeah. we're, we are transient and we are flaky. And, and but it's why you mentioned that that's our early. charm. That's what makes us likable. Right. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's that X factor. We're the French society. <laughs> but uh, it's also like, it, it when you were bringing up the union earlier, I remember having one. Well, I was really young, but I like um, Dan and I both went to school for political science, so we've always been like politically involved to, to a certain extent. But mm-hmm. um, I, well, the first bar job I, or maybe the, the first bar job I got at when I got out of university, there was a. Um, a young headstrong woman working there and she was talking about a union everyone who worked there was in their 20s and i was in a meeting with the owners and the manager and they were freaking out about this girl starting this union and i finally just said to them like are you fucking kidding me like do you think that do you really think that <laughs> that, that, that eight to ten 20 year olds you've got here are major threat yeah, to start you don't have a lot to worry about. yeah <laughs> No, but I definitely understand that. That's funny. Well, I think it's really cool that you're involved in doing that, though, because it that it needs to be done, and it certainly needs to be done here as well. So somebody needs to start it. Let's talk a little bit about the tip culture thing, because I know, seeing as you had listened to the other podcasts as well, I'm interested to get your thoughts on how what you feel about moving to a no-tip um, sort of structure. Yeah, no, I was, I was a little bit frustrated listening. You know, I wish I had been on that episode. I was like, <laughs> why couldn't they have asked me to be on this one? That would have been. Yeah. Uh, I, first of all, I respect everyone's opinion on the topic. Mm. And, you know, I have absolutely been accused of being aggressive in my viewpoints in the past. And 
you know, you don't need to go past Twitter in 2019. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I really think is missing in the conversation is a really honest conversation about what we're talking about, because it's it's not a binary thing. It's not an on and off switch because you're going to compromise something to get no tipping. Mm-hmm. Something something has to give. So what I, all I see is that right now the the group that's kind of perpetuating this um, legislation and this idea, they're called One Fair Wage or Restaurant Opportunity Center. Mm-hmm. They have no solid data. Number one, all of their data cites itself, which you know I'm not a scientist, but I know enough about science to know that's not really how science works. No. Um, and there's not enough. No, there's not enough people out there studying the effects of what would happen because it's not really that big of an issue. It only affects how many people, right? So we we're not playing with a full deck of cards. Mm. We're also talking about equalizing front of the house and back of the house pay. I'm all for that. Just pay cooks more. Yeah. Yeah. I I was a cook and God damn it. I should have been paid more money. Oh but, yeah. It's a, it's a shitty job that they definitely should be getting. Why are we more. talking about taking tips from the front of the house and giving them to the back of the house. Back of the house just needs to be paid more full stop. They don't need to adjust anything else. Right. Just pay the cooks more. Right. That should be the argument. Yeah. And I do find I've had this conversation a lot since uh, in the last over the last year, either on the show or off. And yeah. most of the people who are pushing to the one, not all, there's certainly lots of front of house people who are involved with this cause, but tends to be driven from people who work in the back of the house. See the other way to do to go about the no uh, the no tip culture is just to raise all the prices in your bar and restaurant mm-hmm. and have the guests sort of make it up and then split it the proceeds right among your staff. But then that also, like you said, that creates a different problem in a different area. If you're the only place doing it in your city or whatever, yeah. yeah. And <laughs> you know, if we make the choice, and this is not a choice that I support, but if we make the choice that we're going to live in a capitalist society. And this may be, sound surprising that I don't support that idea, seeing as I'm against raising the, the tip minimum wage. But <laughs> you know, I, we can we can do that math uh, later. Um, but if we choose to live in a capitalist society, there there are fa- open market factors that play a role in everything that we do, and that's mm-hmm. a conscious choice that we're making as a country. I would have a very different view of tipping if we had universal health care. Mm-hmm. I would have a very different view of tipping if we had. Uh, guaranteed paid sick leave. Mm-hmm. I would have a very different view of, you know, paid time, universal paid time off, paid maternity leave, paid family leave. These are a lot of things that we have in DC. We have paid family leave and paid sick leave. But I know that at $15 an hour, which is the minimum wage in DC, if that's what I was going to have to be paid for my employer, one of two things is going to happen. I'm either going to lose shifts or I might lose my job. Mm-hmm. Now, the reality of the situation is I'm not going to lose my job. I have multiple degrees, a decade plus of experience, right. speak perfect English, and I have, you know, a great understanding of my field. The barrier to entry goes up significantly. Yes. That's a we point. no longer have the transience of the industry. We no longer have the flexibility that we're afforded. We no longer have kind of the un- the intangible perks of being in a restaurant or a mm-hmm. bar that you sorely miss the minute you go to an office job. You can't just 
get cut early at an office job. You can't uh, right, trade yeah. shifts at an office yeah, job. You can't, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, you can't pick up shifts near Christmas in an office job. You know, mm-hmm. you're just kind of stuck where you're at. So there's a lot of things that would be impacted by this, that those things make it possible for other people to make very good livings. Now there's yeah. pay disparity and we got to talk about that and that's real, but I don't think that's anyone's responsibility outside of the ownership to make that up. Right. And I think, those are all really good points. And I think all the other thing that always worries me too is like, I just keep circling back to this. Like, unless everybody does it, and this means all the fucking chain restaurants as well, then the places that try and do it, they're going to have to, in, in some way, transfer some of that cost of the higher wages mm-hmm. to the guest. And then that means that the, all your prices are going up. And if you're, if you're one of the few places in town that has, that is vastly more expensive than every other place, yeah. well, you're not going to be in business that long. That's very true. And that's a great point. We do have to talk about price elasticity. And, you know, what I love, what I absolutely love is the hypocrisy of of liberals. And I'm not a conservative, I'm a leftist, but liberals are the first ones to say we need to raise the minimum wage and charge extra. And we don't even have to tip. They love to espouse that. They love to be on that talking point, but they're the first people that are going to complain when the cocktail costs $22 and the ribeye costs 80 bucks. And I'm like, Aaron, you asked for this. You literally <laughs> didn't want it. I don't know how to help you. <laughs> I know. It's funny. Like, I even like my bar that I have now in, we're in a small, well, pretty decent sized town, but like not anywhere close to like Toronto. We're just outside of there in Kitchener. And trying to like even introduce sort of a higher priced bar in this town, the blowback is extreme on yeah. all points. So people come in and be like, what the fuck does it cost? They look at a bill. This isn't Toronto. You can't charge this. And I'm like, <laughs> well, it's only, it's only not going to be Toronto as long as you guys don't want it to be. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? exactly. so, so like the blowback, if you start doing the, the fair wage side of this argument, they have so many good points, but I, they bring up a lot of great stuff. Yeah. And, I just have a lot of it. I think you can address outside of the wage issue. Right. And it needs to be. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just that, I just see these couple of there's two road the one or two roadblocks I can't get by, like and and you and in general also you don't see a lot of servers and bartenders pressing for this. So that's a great point. In the United States, they'll they'll talk about the seven states that don't have uh, tip credits. Uh, six of them never had a tip credit in the first place because they're the newest states that we have. And one of them got rid of it in 1951, California, and they didn't raise their minimum wage to $13 an hour till like 2011. So this is not, this is very new territory for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's like Alaska tips the most and they don't have a tip credit. I think I would, if I was in a bar in Alaska, I'd be like, I'm sorry you fucking live in Alaska. Like, here's $50. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> Actually, can you just describe exactly what you mean by tip credits to anybody who's not living in the U.S. and might not get it? Yeah, yeah. so the tip credit is basically that you have whatever your minimum wage is, and then most states, 43 uh, states, have a, sl- a lower minimum wage that if you make tips, you can make that much. Right. Okay. Um, so we just, yeah, we just call it server wage here, but it's yeah, the, same the, the thing. tip yeah. minimum wage, yeah. Yeah. I think the tip credit, because it's, yeah. you know, that's, right. that's how we talk about it. Yeah. Now, I think the DC model is the way to go. We have a minimum wage of $15 an hour. The tipped minimum wage is $5 an hour, both oh. of which are tied to the cost uh, of consumer goods, the CPI index, and they will go up or down depending on that, probably only up. And we have implemented teeth in our wage theft laws that, you know, if people aren't paying you the full $15 minimum wage, uh, they are fined and you're given that money that you're owed. Mm. 
I so think wait, that's a better way to go. Just, I just want to make sure I heard that correctly. It's the regular minimum wage is 15. Your tip credit minimum wage is five? Yes. Holy shit. Wow, that's pretty low. That is, uh, that is, gotta, that is pretty low. That you, is pretty low. Zach, you might want to move to Canada. Here it's fifteen and <laughs> it's fifteen and twelve. Yeah, no, I, I, you guys got a lot more going. Listen, that's not what's going to bring me to Canada. I tried. <laughs> I've already considered it multiple times, and that had nothing to do with it. Yeah, well, just in case you're wondering, I may or may not be opening a wine bar. So if you really want to make a move, <laughs> we'll talk about it. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to touch on before we uh, let you go? You're good. It's a lot of time today. Yeah, no, I mean, this has been great. I really appreciate you guys having me on. Um, if anybody wants to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Zach, Z-A-C underscore H-O-F-F-M-A-N. And I'm on Instagram at Z-A-C 90210. And nothing else is important on my social. Okay. <laughs> well, that was great, man. Thanks for coming on. It was a really interesting discussion. You're an interesting guy. And uh, you're the exact kind of person that the service industry needs and needs uh, fighting for it. So thanks for everything you do. Thanks, man. I, I'm, I'm doing my best. I'm doing everything uh, I can. All right, man. Thanks again. Have a great day. Thanks for talking to you guys. Thanks, man.